you would turn with me to Exodus 13. We're going to be in Exodus 13 and 14 this evening. How's everyone doing? Some nice weather today, huh? So It's been a beautiful fall, except for that 24-hour period, right? So, anybody have their sprinkler system erupt? Anybody out there? So everybody blew out their system prior to that storm last week? Everybody's like, I'm not admitting it that it was me. So I was thinking there's probably a lot of sprinkler systems that blew up because of the cold, cold weather. 14 degrees in October is pretty cold, so... Well, enough about the weather, huh? Let's uh, get into the Word. Let's pray and study God's Word tonight. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and many times in our lives when it feels like there's, there's no way out, that that's when you do your greatest work. And so, God, we look to you. We know that you are the author over our circumstances. It's not by happen chance, but it's by your will and your sovereignty. So would you remove distractions and really speak to us through your word tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. The children of Israel have just been delivered from Egypt. This long process of Pharaoh hardening his heart, God sending plagues upon Pharaoh, and finally Pharaoh relents. He says, I'm going to let the children of Israel go after the firstborn of all of the house of Egypt had been killed. For the Israelites, you'd probably think, okay, this is the moment where it's going to be smooth sailings. Pharaoh is behind us. We're journeying towards the promised land. But what we're going to study tonight is we're going to see that it gets very difficult. Quite literally, the Red Sea is in front of them. Pharaoh is behind them. It seems like there's no way out. But it's in this moment that God does his greatest work of deliverance. So leading up to this event, God gives instruction uh, with the firstborn and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are ongoing things that God wants for the children of Israel, for them to remember their deliverance. So this is verse 1 of chapter 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So God's saying, I want the firstborn to belong to me. This is why, verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord God brought you out of it with a mighty hand, eat nothing containing yeast. So these two things, that the firstborn would belong to the Lord, and also the celebration of unleavened bread, both point back to their deliverance. Why? Because it was the firstborn that died in Egypt that resulted in their deliverance. And also, the Passover happened as they were leaving Egypt, then they entered into unleavened bread. So God says, I want you to do this continually going forward. Verse 4, today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you, to, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. This has been a long process to be able to enter into the promised land. They're not there yet, but they're delivered out of Egypt. They've been enslaved for 400 years. This promise goes all the way back to Abraham, but yet is not fulfilled. And God's saying, it's going to happen. And sometimes God's promises in our lives feel like they're slow in coming, aren't they? 
But one thing we can trust is the word of God is true. The word of God is going to be fulfilled. Every promise of God. So when you get into the promised land, you need to observe this feast. For the seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So this feast, one of the purposes of this feast was to teach the children of God's deliverance out of Egypt, because over time, it's easy for things to be lost, right? It's easy for God's work to not be passed down from generation to generation. So we're going to see God purposely puts this feast together and the firstborn being dedicated to the Lord so that the children would understand. Hey, Dad, the bread's a little different. (laughs) It doesn't taste very good. It's pretty flat. Where's the yeast? Well, this is going back to when God brought us out of the land of Egypt and he told us to set this week aside to have unleavened bread. Verse 9, this observation will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips for the Lord God brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So keeping this feast and celebrating this feast was to be a sign, like putting a post-it on your forehead. Sometimes if you really want to remember something, maybe you write it down on your hand. That's when you're really desperate. You can't find a piece of paper or you know you'll lose the piece of paper. So keeping this feast was going to be a sign upon their heads and upon their hands that God's word, the law, was to be on their lips. So he goes on to explain this in verse 10. You shall keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised an oath to you and to your ancestors. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All of the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your sons ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord God brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offering of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it'll be like a sign on your hand and on your symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So the reason for the firstborn to be dedicated unto the Lord was to teach future generations of God's work, similar to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, why are you sacrificing this healthy donkey? Well, because of the deliverance that God brought into our lives, because it cost the firstborn in Egypt. The second reason for this celebration of the firstborn is to remember how God delivered them out of, out of Egypt, to teach future generations, but also to remember God's deliverance, and also to introduce the concept of redemption. So he, you have your oldest son, your oldest child, and 
you don't want to sacrifice your child. You, know, you don't want to kill your child unto the Lord. And so you would kill a lamb in its place. And the death of that lamb would redeem, would buy back your, your child's life. So this is pointing to Jesus, who is our redemption, who bought us back. The blood of the lamb saved us, literally saved us. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the dedication of the oldest unto the Lord all points to Jesus because yeast is a picture of sin throughout Scripture. Christ is the only one who is without sin. Amen? And it's his sacrifice upon the cross that cleanses us from sin. Tonight when we celebrate communion, Jesus at the Last Supper, holding a piece of unleavened bread, said, this is my body which is broken for you. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the pure sacrifice for us, purifying us from sin. On Sunday, we're going to study Colossians chapter 2, Lord willing, where it tells us all of the feasts are a shadow pointing to Jesus. So if you think of someone's shadow, there's a shadow here on the stage, it, it points to the reality of their substance, right? You don't embrace the shadow, you, you embrace the person. And so these feasts are a shadow that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the substances of Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the feast of unleavened bread. He's that sacrifice for us. So all of this very perfectly points to Christ and what he has done for us. Verse 17 When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if we face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. Have you noticed that God's ways are rarely the most direct route? All logic, Google Maps, ways... Any GPS going from Egypt to the promised land would take you through Philistine country. This is the way that you should go. It's the shortest way. It's the most direct route. But God says, no, I'm not going to take my people by the direct route. I'm going to take them by the Red Sea. I'm going to camp them right in front of the Red Sea. How are you going to get this huge multitude over a million people across the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming. He's wanting to retrieve his slaves, his resource in his, in his mind. God is the one that's orchestrating this. And he says, look, I don't want you going the most direct way because he knows the hearts of the children of Israel. If they faced war this quickly, they would give up and they would go back to, to Egypt. So there's a great verse in the scripture Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Trust him. Trust him with some of your heart. Trust him with 80% of your heart. All your heart. And surrender your ways to him because God knows. And his ways are not our ways. So if you're sitting here tonight and saying, I can't make sense of my own life. Ever been there? I don't understand why we're not going the most direct route. It seems like we should go this way. But the Lord is directing this way. Trust him. Trust him. Surrender to him. Don't lean on your own understanding and realize that he has a plan. Verse 18 
So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle, directing them towards the Red Sea. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Joseph, in his old age, had a declaration of faith. We're going to leave this land. And when we leave this land, make sure to take my bones with you to the promised land. So Joseph had a declaration of faith, and Moses is having a declaration of obedience. He's honoring Joseph's wishes to bring his bones into the promised land. So here, Joseph's bones are speaking of God's faithfulness. His bones are speaking of Joseph believed the promises of God. And your bones, when you die, declare something. Not in some weird, mystical way that they're still speaking, but it represents the life that you lived, right? When people think about your life, if they visit the place that you're buried or they visit the place where your ashes were spread, your life speaks of something. So what do you think your dead bones are going to declare? Are they going to declare the faithfulness of God like Joseph? Are those that come behind us with our bones go, well, there's one thing I know about Eric is he believed God, that he trusted God, that he trusted God's promises. That's what Joseph's bones are declaring. In verse 20, and after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Check this out. So that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So how did God direct them? How did they know that they weren't supposed to go this route of the Philistines and they were to go down by the Red Sea? Because God gave them this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells us that they walked under the cloud. Wouldn't you in the wilderness, the hot, arid wilderness, you would walk under the cloud because of the shade. They literally said, where's the shade? Okay, God's leading us by this cloud. Here's the shade, here's the provision. So we're gonna go in that direction. But also sometimes they would travel at night. This pillar of fire was so bright that it allowed enough light for over a million people to be able to travel. Even if you have a flashlight and you're about six or seven people deep and it's a dark night, in the back they're getting no light, right? It's only the couple people in the front. But this pillar of light is so bright that they're not just able to, to read at night, you know, they're not just able to have enough light to be able to brush their teeth. They're able to travel by night. Most of the pictures that you see that depict this, it shows the pillar of fire with them all camped around the pillar of fire at night. And I'm sure that was the case some nights, but there were some nights where the pillar was on the move. And so they were traveling at night at times. That's how bright the light was. I think this really speaks to us of the way that God desires to lead us and guide us in our lives. We're told in Colossians that 
Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And that word rule in the Greek, it means inbounds or out of bounds. It's like at a volleyball match, you've got the line judge that's saying it's in, it's out. And the peace of God leads us by letting us know, oh, this is in and this is out. Where's the cloud? Many times we need to ask that question, where's the cloud? Is there a cloud of God's shade? Is there a cloud of God's provision? I love it when God's on the move because when he's on the move, we simply have to go where he's directing and go where he's leading and saying, okay, the cloud is, is leading, so I'm going to walk in the shade. Where's the, where's the cloud? Where's the light and where's the shade? And many times that's how God will navigate us in our lives. And then there's other times where we don't feel the peace of God. We're praying through things, we're weighing through things, we're searching scriptures, we're talking with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we step back and we evaluate and we go, you know, I don't think there's shade here. I don't think there's, there's light here. And so I don't believe that this is the will of God for me. Now, you'll have to always run this through scripture. You know, someone may come to me and say, man, I just feel like that there's God's provision for me to cheat on my spouse. Yeah, that's called sin, you know? The, the flesh is always very active. And yeah, if you want to leave God's will for your life, there's going to be opportunity to do that. So, so obviously, use common sense, right? Don't, don't use this as a license for sin. But this is saying, I, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow your word, and I'm seeking for your direction. And so will you show me what you have for me by your provision, by there being light and by there being shade? It's a cool picture of God's care for his people. So chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Harath between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Tell the Israelites to turn back. I want you to go back. And I want you to camp by this place on the Red Sea. This makes no sense. This can't be the Lord. We're not going to follow this cloud over here, follow this pillar of light over here. But this is exactly what the Lord had for them. And we're going to see God's plan unfold. In verse 3, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. God's setting a trap for Pharaoh. He's wanting the Israelites to appear like they've lost their way in the desert. They're confused. They're just kind of wandering around. And they're trapped perfect place for Pharaoh to go and attack. There's no place for them to go. They've pinned themselves in on the Red Sea. So God gives this instruction to them that this is what he's doing. In verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their service. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. Then the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. 
This has to be that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh because it makes no sense. Pharaoh's lost everything. He's lost his firstborn. You would think they'd be saying, phew, the Israelites are gone. Those guys are so much trouble, who would want them back? We're better off without them. But God was doing a work here. See, Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Now God is confirming that decision, saying, I'm going to use Pharaoh's heart for my glory. And God is directing Pharaoh out into the Red Sea ultimately to be destroyed. God's the one who's sovereigns. God's the one who reigns over nations. Verse 9, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen, troops. So he gets everybody. All the horses, all the chariots, all the troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hiroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Now, remember all that they've been through. All of these plagues, the frogs, the lice, the water into blood, the death of the firstborn, delivered. And they're delivered in style with bling bling. They went to their neighbors and asked for gold and silver. And they're like, sure, here you go. Just take some gold and take some silver. Out in the wilderness, pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. God's presence is with them in a very tangible way. But now the Red Sea's in front of them. Pharaoh's behind them attacking. It appears that there's no way out. And this is what they say. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Were the graves full in Egypt? That's why you brought us out here? You needed more place for burial? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. (laughs) See how quickly doubt enters into their hearts and their minds? God had just said, I'm going to give you the promised land. And when you get into the promised land, make sure that you keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And make sure that the firstborn belong to me and you redeem them back with, with the blood of the Lamb. So God is speaking to them. He showed himself faithful, but they get in this moment where they're fearing for their existence and they're like saying, you know, really, we just wanted to stay in Egypt. (laughs) We never really wanted out of Egypt to begin with. And all things are lost. And it's forsaken. And and Moses, why, why did you do this to us? And isn't that so much like us? When we think about all that God has done for us, is that we actually have more than the children of Israel. How so? Because we have Jesus. We have the death of Christ upon the cross for our sins, his resurrection, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And even with that, when there appears to be no way out, I think all of us have sang this song, haven't we? Where we go, Lord, I just feel abandoned. Where are you at? Like, why did you lead me this way? 
I thought I was obeying you. Here I'm trying to follow this cloud and this pillar of fire and things don't seem to be working out and I'm going to punt, right? This, 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 this is miserable. So we can relate to this response just like the, the children of Israel. In verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. (laughs) Great encouragement from Moses. And I think is very applicable for us if we feel like we're standing at the Red Sea. That God has led us to the Red Sea. We're trying to walk in obedience to him. The sea's in front of us. Pharaoh's behind us. Don't be afraid. Fear is a terrible taskmaster, isn't it? Fear starts to get into our hearts and our minds and we begin to very quickly play out the worst case scenario. I'm done. It's over. I don't see any way out. And despair comes over us. And that encouragement, don't be afraid and then stand firm. I'm sure everything inside of the Israelites is like they're looking at each other and going, you know, I don't really have to be that fast, but I definitely need to be faster than the guy standing next to me. I'm just going to run. I'm out of here. Like, why would I stand here? We're, we're sitting ducks. We're, we're going to die. So I'm going to flee. Moses encouraged me, just stand firm. You need to stay where you're at. And fear and dismay and discouragement is a terrible base for making decisions. But it's easy to do, isn't it? If we're making decisions out of fear instead of out of faith, man, that's, that's the wrong motivation for decision. It's going to be a a terrible outcome. You stand firm where God's called you. I know that I'm here because I followed the shade. I know that I'm here because I followed the pillar of fire. I know that I'm here because God delivered. So I'm going to stand firm. I'm just going to stand and wait and see what God's going to do. And as they stand firm, then they would see the deliverance of the Lord. And God is going to defeat the Egyptians. This is a great moment for Moses as a leader to not give in to the voices of doubt and the voices of fear and to say, no, God's going to be faithful. God is going to see us through. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. God's going to do the fighting. All you have to do is stand still. Church, sometimes I think that this is harder than actually fighting. God's saying, look, you don't have anything to contribute to the fight. All you need to do is be still and God's going to do the fighting for you. But Lord, I got all these great ideas, right? I've got this, I've got that. I can bring this to the table. God has a way of bringing us to the end of ourselves where all we can do is stand still and trust. And wait to see the deliverance that he's going to bring in our lives. How many great works of deliverance and salvation has God brought in our lives because we've come to this place where we're out of answers. We're out of solutions. We can't cross the Red Sea and we can't defeat Pharaoh and his army. And all we can do is stand still, to be still and to know that he is God. Sometimes it's easier if God says, okay, why don't you do this, this, and this? 
Here's something that you can contribute to it, but it's humbling to have to simply stand still and allow the Lord to do the fighting, to allow the Lord to bring the deliverance. In verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. So now the Lord speaks to Moses and says, it's time for action. Tell the Israelites that it's time for them to move. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. If we're Moses and the children of Israel, we probably don't anticipate God's deliverance by parting the Red Sea. Many times when it comes to God's working in our lives in these difficult situations, we go, God, this is how you could solve this. Here's a possible solution, A, B, C, but God's solution is something we hadn't even thought about, right? We know the story, and we know that God's going to part the Red Sea and then drown Pharaoh and his army. They didn't know that. They're like, well, there's an option here we didn't even realize. God parts the Red Sea, divides the, the Red Sea. This is the instruction for Moses is to stretch out his staff over the sea, and God's going to divide it. And when they go through, they're going to go through on dry ground. When God works, he does a really good job. They're not going to walk in the mud. God got his hair dryer out and parted this and just all dry. And they're just walking through on nice, firm, crunchy soil. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory for Pharaoh and all of his army. Though his chariots, through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God's going to glorify himself. We need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. It's not just about my circumstance. It's not just about my comfort. It's about God declaring his glory to all that are involved. The Israelites are going to experience God's glory. The Egyptians are going to experience God's glory. And God's using this difficulty to declare his glory. So our story is part of his bigger story. My story is part of his, his bigger story where God is declaring his glory to all that, that are in, involved. So verse 19, the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. All God's got to do to protect the children of Israel is to take his angel, the angel of the Lord, from the front to the back. Move one angel, right? I'm not even sure that they were aware of the angel of God in the front of them. But now they are, right? God's just, okay, I'm going to move one angel. Takes the cloud, moves the cloud to the back of them and to the Egyptians, it's darkness, but to the children of Israel, it's light. And I think this is a great picture of the reality of spiritual truth, isn't it? To us, spiritual truth is light. But to those who don't know Christ as their Savior, it's darkness. They're looking at Jesus going, 
That's the worst thing anybody could ever do. And we're on the other side of it going, wow, Christ is amazing and and has lit up my life. And hopefully they pass from darkness into light. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. All that night, the Lord drove the sea back with great east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on their left. This is the ultimate aquarium experience. (laughs) On on our first Israel tour uh, years ago, we went down to the Red Sea and up to Petra. And Hannah, my oldest daughter, was with me on that trip. It was just her and I. She was nine years old. And we decided we'd had a lot of traveling. So we took that day off, uh, didn't go up to Petra, and just hung out on the Red Sea and went to an aquarium there on the Red Sea. And there is a lot of really cool ocean life on the Red Sea and really warm water and all these, these types of things. And so when they're going through the Red Sea, they're experiencing all this amazing aquatic life as they're looking at it on their right and on their left. In verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and all of the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud and the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. So they're going through all night, the Israelites, and now the Egyptians start to follow them. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting against Egypt. The Israelites are like, there's no way out. We're completely overwhelmed. We're going to die right now at this moment. All God has to do, move an angel, move a cloud, part the Red Sea, right? And I know many times in our lives, we feel outnumbered. But if God is with you, you are living in the majority. Does that make sense? So all of our circumstances may be stacked against us, but God is with us. Now, I'm not saying that things always turn out to our benefit, meaning that we don't have difficulty. Things don't always turn out the way we expect them to, but they do always turn out according to God's glory because God is with us, and that's what he has promised to us. In verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. Then the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. (laughs) So God destroys Pharaoh and his army at this point. God is painting a picture of salvation in Passover and the Red Sea. What do I mean? Because the Passover lamb that was killed and applied to the door of the homes resulted in death passing over. Jesus, the Passover lamb, when his blood is applied to the door of our lives, death passes over and we're saved. And our taskmaster is Pharaoh, our sinful nature. The Red Sea points to baptism. Baptism represents 
that our old man, our sinful nature, has been buried with Christ. Pharaoh is buried in the, the Red Sea. And our old man, our sinful man, is buried with Christ. And we're risen in newness of life. So in a few weeks when we have baptism here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, for those of you that are being led to be baptized, what it represents is, is what took place at salvation. All of our sins have been nailed to the cross with Christ, and our sin is buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. So just as, as Pharaoh was buried into the Red Sea, our old man is buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. So God's painting this picture for us of salvation. In verse 29, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right side and on their left. The day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So their response to salvation, God saving them, is they feared the Lord and they put their trust in the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is the awe of God where we're moved to respect him and put him in the highest place of worship. And that's what should take place when we understand that our sins are paid for and we're forgiven and we trust Christ for salvation, that we're in the awe of God. We're in the worship of God. We're in the, the fear of God and we trust him. We go, okay, Lord, I can trust you because I know who you are, that you sent your son to, to die for me. I'm putting my, my trust in you. So I think that this section of scripture, where it seems like and it feels like that there's no way out in our lives, is very applicable to us. Because there will be many times in our relationship with the Lord where we go, hold on, wait a second, this is not the most direct route. Why in the world are we going down by the Red Sea? And that's decision number one to go, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. You know what you're doing. This doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to anybody else, but I trust you. Then there'll be even more times as we're trying to follow the Lord and walk in obedience that by God's will and his divine plan and sovereignty, that the Red Sea's going to be in front of us, Pharaoh's going to be behind us, and there is no way out. And we're smack dab right in the will of God. How does this make sense? I didn't think that this is what following Christ was going to look like. You can imagine what kind of expectations they had coming out of Egypt, and this was not it. Die week one in the wilderness from Pharaoh, right? And then the doubts come in. And you start listening to the person next to you and they're saying, why in the world are we out here? What in the world are we doing? Why don't we just give up? Why don't we just pack for the hills and and run for it? And you hear the voice of God saying, hey, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Stand right where you're at and wait and see the deliverance of God. And God comes through in such a, marvelous way, where he receives the glory. Nobody here could look at this and read this and go, wow, Moses is a great general. The Israelites are are great warriors. You can only read this and go, there's a great God. 
The Israelites didn't have anything to do with this. In fact, they were kind of scared pansies, weren't they? Where doubt entered in really, really quickly, right? Just like us as well. And so God's working in the midst of this to show us his glory, to show us his power, and to show the unbeliever God's power. Where they, they look at our lives and they go, man, they were pretty scared. They had a lot of doubt. Their trust wasn't where they were supposed to be, but God really came through for them. And the Lord did this, this great, great work. But it's not fun, and it's not comfortable. And if you're like me, I like to have it planned out and figured out, right? I see the Red Sea, and I see Pharaoh coming, and it's like, okay, it's time for Eric Plan 101, Let's do all the research. There's got to be a best decision here. There's got to be a way forward. And the Lord very quickly says, take your little plan and pack sand, right? It's just go ahead and it's not going to work. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to rely upon me. You know, I can't really go into all of the details tonight, but this is where the Lord's really been having me this year in a lot of different ways, in, in ministry, in family, what my dad's been going through with his health. He continues to struggle with his memory and, and struggle with his Parkinson's disease. And I'm trying to navigate a way forward and figure out this and, and figure out that. And more often than not, the Lord's reminding me, Eric, you got to trust me. And you got you to gotta trust me with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understandings. Give it over to me, Right? You know, in ministry, it's easy to try to do the same thing and come together with plans and strategies and solve problems. And the Lord's been teaching me and reminding me, hey, that's not the way I want you to pastor. I want you to pastor depending upon me. And the needs that I'm coming up against in all areas of my life are showing me, hey, Eric, you're not enough, right? And at first, that's like, ah, right? But then it's really encouraging because the next message is, God, you are enough. God, you are enough. So don't run. Don't run when the Red Sea's in front of you and Pharaoh's behind. Just, just stand firm and wait and see the salvation of God. And let's apply this tonight as we take communion. We don't want communion to become an empty ritual, something that we just do over and over on Wednesday night. I want to read us a verse as we head into communion that I think really fits with our Bible study tonight. And you can turn with me there if you'd like. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians 1 and verse 9. It says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from such a great death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So as we take communion, we go, you know, I don't have this personal experience of God sending the plagues upon Pharaoh for deliverance. But I do have the personal experience of the cross. He has delivered us from our greatest need that we'll ever face, and that's our sins. 
And as we hold on to the elements tonight, his broken body and his shed blood, then say, Lord, in my circumstance, it feels like there's no way out, but I trust you. You have delivered me, you are delivering me, and you're going to continue to deliver me and allow God to meet us in that space. So Father, as we come and we take communion, we do pray that you would meet us in a fresh way. And for those that this section of scripture is so applicable to where they are in life, where they just came in tonight feeling pressed and challenged and that there's no way out. They look forward and the sea is there. They look behind them and Pharaoh is there, but God, you're there in the midst. You're right there in the midst with us. And we do look back on your deliverance of the cross, of your shed blood upon the cross, and we choose to trust you in the present trial. We pray that you would be glorified, that you would bring deliverance in such a way that you would be glorified. So we draw near to you, and we pray that you would bless this time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.